Assalamu alaikum. You're listening to another episode of the My Muslim Family podcast. In the last few years, and in particular since the start of the pandemic, something that has been on a lot of our minds as parents is the mental well-being and mental health of our children. And inshallah, to get some insight into this topic, we'll be speaking to Dr. Amina Al Yasin um, about the most common mental health conditions that she sees in children, the red flags that we as parents should be on the lookout for, and what we can do as parents to best support our children when it comes to their mental health and well-being. Dr. Amina is dual accredited in pediatrics and general practice. She's currently undertaking a clinical fellowship to improve access to early mental health services. And she is the director of mental health and well-being projects for Al Ain, which is Iraq's largest orphan care charity. We're super lucky to have Dr. Amina on today, and I really hope you find today's episode as insightful as I do. Assalamualaikum, Dr. Amina. Thank you so much for joining me today for uh, this podcast. Before we get into the nitty gritty and you know all the stuff we want to discuss today, um, it'd be really nice if you could maybe introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into what you're doing and particularly child mental health. Sure, Walikum Salam Zahra. So good to be talking to you today. I know we've been um, discussing doing this podcast for a while, so excited about it. Um, so who I am? So I'm, as you said, I'm Amin Ali Asin. I'm a I'm a doctor. I'm trained in pediatrics and general practice. And, you know, for a long time, I was just very much a physical health doctor. But then slowly, slowly, I started to realize that I was actually much more interested in the thinking and the dynamics and the, the families and the systemic things mm. that are related to health rather than just the physicality of it. And I think yeah. that was partially what got me more interested in the mental health side and an opportunity came up to work with Iraq and work with um, you know Al Ain which is a charity for orphan children in Iraq and I started working on a few projects with them and I realized that yeah. goodness this is what I'm interested in you know this is what I'm really interested in children mm-hmm. who've had like really adverse early life experiences and how we can try and you know, how we can try and change that tangent, how we can try and improve the rest of their lives. And so um, I took on more and more roles with that. And that's where, that's what my my niche yeah. is at the moment. So at the moment, I split mm-hmm. my working week three ways. One is being a GP, a special interest in child mental health based in Northwest London. The other bit of my week is mm-hmm. working in the child and um, adolescent mental health clinics in Brent. The third part of my week is working on these projects in Iraq. Lots of remote work, but also lots of travel to Iraq as well. Mental health generally, like not just children's mental health, but mental health for everyone has been such a talking point for the last few years, especially. And I think COVID really, really brought up discussions about mental health. And I think understandably, a lot of people started becoming more aware of their own mental health during covid um but really i feel like mental health wasn't talked about as much say 10 20 years ago like it wasn't as big as it is now um and i guess the first question that comes to mind is is that because there are actual 
um, like more cases of ill mental health now? Or is it just because we're just a lot more educated, a lot more aware, we know how to kind of label things? Like, you know, someone may have had a condition before, but they just thought, oh, well, that's life, you just have to trudge on. And they never got diagnosed and they never kind of knew that this can be helped or this has a name. Um, so which one is it or is it a combination of both? Such a good question, you know, and so much to unpack there in what you've said. It's a question that's asked a lot, you know. Mm. Mental health cases seem to be increasing. Is yeah. this because prevalence of them is actually increasing or are becoming sort of more sensitive yeah. at picking them up or, you know, more sensitive at diagnosing them? Or there's always a, mm. um, you know, between the, between the lines, something you read, um, some people, when they ask this question of, are we making yeah. more of a fuss about it than, it than than the reality? And I think in terms of the, are mm-hmm. we making a fuss? No. But the other two, it's a combination. So it's certainly a combination of, um, yeah. we are becoming much more aware of mental health conditions. There are some conditions in particular, yeah. like if we think of, some of the neurodevelopmental conditions, so autism and ADHD, they are conditions which have always existed but have been very, very under-recognized. And what happens in medicine is when a a condition is characterized and recognized and, you know, defined, in the beginning, it's only the much more severe cases that people start to pick up on. But as time passes, you start to realize the um, more moderate or the more mild cases or the cases in which people yeah. were always had that condition but were managing to function quite well and so it up and like with autism and ADHD they're not strictly mental health conditions but they're such a good um, example of this process in medicine. And is that what you would call like high functioning autism or high functioning? Absolutely yes functioning autism or high-functioning ADHD have always been under-recognized and there Mm. will be certain groups where it's even more under-recognized and so for example females always been a little bit more tricky Mm. to to instantly recognize a female with autism or ADHD and so yeah, yeah we part of it is that we are getting better at picking things up getting better at you know believing people when they tell us that they're struggling um but also undoubtedly you know modern life is very very challenging and modern life is um, asking people to juggle lots and lots of things at the same time and the recent covid pandemic asks people to do that whilst at the same time stripping them of all their usual coping mechanisms of social interaction and going out and having a routine and so it's natural that that would um, mean that people realize these difficulties that they may have had Mm. all along but they always had coping mechanisms for and when that was stripped away it it bubbled up to the surface so I think it's a combination it's a combination of increased awareness and increased prevalence and maybe also hopefully fingers crossed slightly reducing stigma which means yeah. people are now able to talk up about it more and seek help when needed do you think 
um social media has kind of become like a new contributing factor maybe because you mentioned you know this expectation that has kind of been thrust upon so many people to do it all and to juggle so many different things and you know mental health aside when mm. we are on social media many of us kind of feel so inadequate sometimes because everyone only posts the best part of their life the best part of their day the best part of their job um do you think social media might be a factor here in kind of piling on the pressure as well you know social media it's such a double-edged sword isn't it like yeah there are there are ways that it has been so positive yeah been lots of you know very informal social media campaigns about mental mm. health yeah enabled lots of people to feel heard and supported for the first time so there's a really big sort of mental health community on um social media which really works for some people and has you know has really helped lots of people yeah social media is positive in that way it's also, mm. it also has been positive in helping lots of people to to feel connected however you are right it does also really feed in to this sort of peer pressure and this sense of comparing yourself to other people at all times of day. Like if you think about it, yeah. a few years ago, the only opportunity to, you had to compare yourself to others would have been nine to five when you were with others or in those yeah. occasional social events where you see the whole community. However, yeah. now it's on tap 24 hours a day. Yeah. And I, and and I always think the difficulty with social media is that you are comparing your insides to everybody else's outsides. Like yeah. only you know how difficult and messy your own life is. Yeah. And you are only seeing, as you said, the beautifully polished and filtered version of everyone else's lives. And yeah. that's going to be difficult. Yeah. However, it, it, you know, it must be said that there has been increasing recognition of that. And lots of people are now talking about their, you know, Instagram versus reality and how yeah. it really looks. And lots of people are opening up about their struggles as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So social media can be really helpful, but we do need to use it as a tool, fully aware of it. Yeah. You know, it's side effects, it's consequences and the fact that it's not a realistic depiction of people's lives. Yeah. And how important is it to kind of relay that to children? Because, um, you know, I was just Googling this week the minimum ages that all these mm. social media platforms have mm -hmm. um, for their users. And it kind of struck me that so many children I know, whether it's like friends or family, or whatever, are so much younger than this. I thought, wow, I, I didn't even realize that, you know, I, I never really thought about, hang on, this age restriction must be here for a reason. Um, but how important is it to kind of not just brief our children, but maybe even support them in using social media or, you know, having that discussion with them about how they might feel when they use social media or what they might come across, that kind of thing. It's so important, isn't it? Like we said that it was a double edged sword. At what age would you let your child use a double edged sword? you know <laughs> scary um i for one i'm a mother of younger children so my children are seven and nine yeah i feel grateful that they are that age and that we've not yet had to have 
that big discussion how yeah we are you know you obviously need to start preparing for it well in advance and it is one of those influences which i would like to delay for as long as yeah. possible you know make as i said you know how how old do they need to be to use a double edged sword before i'd want them to use it i'd want to feel sure that they yeah. knew this thing about reality and people's you know instagram yeah perceptions and that's not an easy concept to understand when you're young no and it's also not easy to deal with all the um content that's going to be thrown at you lots of it yeah. doesn't intend to be negative however it has subconscious effects like if you think about i was thinking about body image the other day and i was thinking that when i was a young child I wasn't actually subject to many images of people yeah. of, of other people like of course you'd have it in advertising and yeah and TV occasionally but it wasn't so much and I actually grew I actually grew up feeling quite confident in myself even though I certainly didn't fit into society's image of beauty mm. it doesn't it just wasn't very much of a big deal Yeah. Whereas now it's everywhere, and it no one maybe maybe no one's intending to be negative about it. But if my daughter, who is you know curly haired and you know brown skinned and yeah on the bigger side and absolutely beautiful in every single way, you know to me as her mummy, yeah. But if she's going to be seeing pictures of people who look totally different to her all the yeah. time. what is she going to internalize mm. you know what is she going to internalize and so yeah it's something that i think it, it's like any other tool you would only let your child use it when you felt confident about their safety yeah. and their maturity in using it and you'd probably want to supervise them yeah whilst using it Definitely. for as long as possible yeah brilliant so good to be thinking about that well in advance of them actually having to stuff yeah with these things it's always useful to be well prepared isn't it definitely definitely um so kind of um giving the discussion a little bit more into the specifics of child mental health um what would you say are the most common conditions you come across when you're working with children what's like the kind of bread and butter of your work um in terms of mental health with children Yeah so let's like quickly relate that back to what we were talking about in terms of the covid pandemic mm -hmm. um before the, the government commissioned a big survey of mental health and they compared mental health in 2017 pre covid to mm -hmm. mental health in two, 2020 and in 2017 about one in 10 children had a diagnosable mental health condition Whereas okay. now in 2020, it's one in six. And so it's wow. definitely increased. It's probably much more than most people would think. So we're talking about five children in an average classroom yeah. would have mental health concerns that would meet the criteria for diagnosis. Okay. The most common conditions that you see are always going to be anxiety and low mood. Those are the ones mm. that are the most common that you would yeah. see. okay and yeah. uh there are for example with anxiety there are lots and lots of different types of anxiety mm -hmm. and um so the the types that you would see more commonly in children are things like 
generalized anxiety or separation anxiety or panic disorder. Those are all yeah. um, on the more common end. And then other conditions that you would see um, quite commonly in a mental health clinic are eating disorders or the start of eating disorders. Okay. Um, OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorder, which is another form of anxiety disorder. Those are the most common ones. Yeah. And then there are ones that are there are there are lots that are much less common in the general population, but obviously would be more represented in mental health clinics. So any sort of psychotic disorders as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of time, a lot of the time, you know, people don't walk around with these labels on. And a lot of the time it's you don't have a diagnose, diagnostic yeah. label and you may not even need a diagnostic label in the beginning. Like I'm yeah. someone who definitely thinks a lot about diagnosis and like how useful is it actually? Okay. Mm. But most of the time, essentially what you're seeing is someone who is struggling to function with yeah. the demands of normal life. Yeah. And that will be a mixture of mood, a mixture of difficulties with sleep, with yeah. eating, with their relationships. Sometimes it has a label, sometimes it doesn't, but all the yeah. time it needs some particular forms of help. I was, you know, on the on the topic of kind of how useful is diagnosing something, um, you mentioned separation anxiety and it just got me thinking to um, my toddler and there are phases where they'll just go through, a, you know, some really intense separation anxiety, but then sometimes you know it's a phase because then a, a week or two later they're completely back to normal and it was probably related to this or that or teething or whatever um do you you know from someone who has no expertise in mental health at all um is there like a normal range of anxiety for example because we you know from time to time even the most healthy person will feel anxious the most healthy person will feel you know a little bit low if something happens in life so is it that there's kind of a normal range and like a normal level at which you might feel anxious and you might feel low and it is it about kind of managing that and if it's not managed then it kind of escalates into something that then requires a diagnosis yeah you know I I love that example you gave about your toddler that's a really good one to use in mental health, especially when you're dealing with children, it's so mm -hmm. important to understand their age and their developmental stage. Yeah. And so for a toddler, separation anxiety is something that would be difficult to diagnose. Yeah. You'd probably avoid because yeah. a, a normal part of toddler behavior is to be quite attached yeah. to your parent. And especially if there's something that's going on that has you know scared you or you're not feeling very well in yourself it's yeah. not it, it would fall within the you would have to obviously ask more questions and understand the situation more but it would probably that behavior would be acceptable for a toddler whereas yeah. if you saw this a similar behavior in a child who was let's say 12 or 13 it would yeah. be a lot more you know interesting uh, you'd want to be curious and to understand mm. much more about what was going on so certainly yeah. with mental health when you're dealing with children, the developmental stage is really, really important. And uh, there's a lot that's very normal in a young yeah. child that wouldn't be normal in an older child. Similarly, imagine if it was the other way around. 
Let's mm. say you had a 15-year-old boy who was talking about particular um, issues, maybe particular sexualized issues. For a 15-year-old boy in a particular context, it may yeah. be considered normal for their stage of development to have those interests. Yeah. However, if it was, let's say, a six-year-old girl or a five-year-old girl, yeah. again... You would that would prompt your curiosity as to yeah. why is this child thinking about this? Have mm. they been subject to something? So you yeah. see, it's always you can never really um, have a blanket rule. It's always yeah. very important to understand the child's developmental age yeah. when you're um, dealing with anything. Yeah. And then you raised another really important question, which is essentially we all we all go through episodes of anxiety. We all go through episodes of low mood. We all go through episodes of, you know, of all sorts of things. When is it actually a problem? Okay, yeah. Or when is it a problem for our child? And the answer is, again, it's not, there are no clear cut and fast, you know, hard and fast rules. However, if it's something that comes and goes, it's less of a problem. But if it's mm. something that's been persistent, specific in medicine we have this rough rule of about two weeks if it's been persistent for about two weeks or more that's when you might want to start thinking about talking to your gp in the first okay. instance if it's something which has led to any sort of risk behavior so any sort of self-harming talk or thoughts of suicide yeah harm to yourself or to others you mm. want to get also talk to someone. You want to talk to a professional. Okay. If it's starting to have a significant functional impairment, so, you know, yeah. it's really starting to affect your sleep. It's starting to affect whether you're able to go to school for a child or work as an adult. Yeah. If it's starting to affect your ability to eat and to nourish yourself, if you've started to have weight changes as a result, mm -hmm. you want to go and get some help. Okay. Also, if you've tried what you can, you know, yeah. all the all the things that we know about, you know, um, as a parent or even for yourself, if you've tried what you can, you've tried to implement a few healthy changes, you've tried to, you know, tap into your usual coping mechanisms and it's not helped, again, that's the time to go and get help. And also, of course, if you've had difficulties before and it's happening again you yeah. want to get help sooner right like you don't want to wait too long yeah. for, for it to cook or if it's a fact you know if in the family there's a history of difficulties with mental mm. health again go and and get it sooner but can I say something which is that there is never no one is ever 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 going to question you or get you in trouble or think you are wasting time Mm. to go and seek help even yeah. in the, if in the end it turns out that you didn't need it yeah or that it wasn't a problem okay you're never going to get in trouble for that we as yeah. a gp i would much much rather have this discussion with someone um and reassure them yeah than have the discussion of oh my goodness i wish you had told me about this six yeah. months ago yeah, yeah? you're never ever going to get in trouble. I remember when I was a very junior doctor and um, in hospitals, you have this thing called the crash call. So that's yeah. when you call 2222 and the, uh, all the crash team, so about five or six people around the hospital will come running to help you with yeah. your patients. 
And I remember they would always tell us, if you are worried, if you yeah. are in doubt, just call it. You yeah. will never get in trouble if we arrive and we all think that the patient was fine. Yeah. But you will be, you know, you will be in a difficult situation if you needed to call it, but yeah. you didn't because you were worried. Yeah. Do you get do you get a lot of that? Do you see a lot of um children who maybe kind of are suffering in silence for way longer than they they should have been? As a GP I speak to a minimum of 36 patients a day and I would say that a minimum of a third of them is for mental health rather than physical health and probably in the pandemic mm -hmm. that was higher it was half if not more was for mental health rather than physical health so I just want to add okay. that in so that people are aware that you yeah. are not alone if you're suffering not wow. what you're not alone at all and please do get help and your gp will have there is nothing you could say that's going to shock them okay they're going to have heard it before mm -hmm. and they're going to know what to do so do get help yeah. and do i see cases where people have let it go on for too long absolutely yes of course you know some people will have been yeah. their child will have been struggling with let's say anxiety for a really 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 long time but then they'll only let us know about it when the child has now refused to go to school at all, you know, and it's been like that for a while. And so, yeah, lots of things are, or let's say that, that there may have been um, low mood and family yeah. issues and difficulties mm. had been starting to bubble for a while. But then we would only be told when the child has started to self-harm. So, yeah, of course, we would want to know early because with anything... You know, a stitch in time saves nine. And with anything, early with most things, mm. early intervention is so much, yeah. you know, more effective. And before early intervention, that's even before taking a step back from early intervention, prevention is better than cure. So yeah. if we can't do the prevention, then at least let's do the early intervention. Yeah. And if not early intervention, then at, at any point, just seek help. Um, you know, you mentioned, we, we've mentioned COVID quite a bit and, you know, mm. um, the normal coping mechanisms, like, you know, seeing your friends, seeing your family, just being outside. Um, mm. That, I assume, is a really big factor in people's mental health. Um, but what are the other kind of risk factors that um, you you kind of consider and you see when it comes to um, children's mental health? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So the thing about COVID is that I always thought that, um, I always think of COVID as like a pressure cooker. Mm. So you know how pressure cookers just like put you under heat and pressure and just extract everything, yeah. right? So we all, we all have various things that we struggle mm. with and various tendencies. And what happened during COVID was that that just brought it out. Mm. So, you know, people who may have had an element of disordered eating or a difficult relationship with food yeah. that became, you know, the focus or the, the coping mechanism. Yeah. And that may have for many people tipped mm -hmm. into an eating disorder for others. There was, you know, maybe an element of anxiety or difficulty with worries and fears, which during COVID may have then manifested as an anxiety disorder. So COVID definitely, I think brought up a, a lot of what, what already existed 
And time in terms of risk factors, so you know the risk factors for mental health are multiple, um, and it can sometimes feel a bit difficult to talk about them. It feels a bit scary, like oh no, you know I have I may have a few of yeah. these risk factors. Does that mean something's going to happen? And it's always important to know that wherever there's a risk factor, there's always like a protective factor or something that you could be doing yeah. to help. Mm -hmm. And the focus should always be on what can I change yeah. or what can I control mm -hmm. rather than what can I not. So let's say that one of the risk factors for mental health is having a family history of mental health difficulties. Yeah. Sure, that's not something you can change. That's not in your control, right? Yeah. But there might be things that you can put in place for yourself, like an increased awareness mm -hmm. of mental health difficulties and seeking help early, yeah. which would protect you. So yeah, the risk factors are there are things about the the child themselves yeah. that may make give them a bit of a risk factor you know so children who have um, special educational needs or developmental concerns or physical health difficulties especially sort of chronic yeah. physical health difficulties children who are like bullied or rejected by their peers that's always a big one yeah. And then we've got things that go on in the family you know so the parenting style any um, abuse within the household, yeah. any conflict w conflict within the household, parental mental health issues, um, poverty, difficulty with finances. Mm -hmm. And then you've got things, so we started with the child, then we looked at the family, and now we're going to be looking at the community and wider sort of systems. Deprivation, you know, socioeconomic disadvantage, yeah. unemployment, mm -hmm living in an area where, you know, having social isolation. I think it's, um, and those are the ones that really interest me because it's really, it, it's, you know, it's harrowing to think about how um, some children are born into such difficult circumstances. Yeah. You know, so many of these circumstances which may be outside of that focus of control for yeah. them and how we can help build in some compensatory mechanisms for them so yeah there are lots of risk factors let's focus on what is within our yeah. control though and also focus on sort of the protective factors mm -hmm. and what we can what we can do to put in place but risk factors i think is still a really good conversation to have yeah. because um when you think about risk factors you can then know yeah. to be on the lookout mm. and to be more sensitive towards those children and any symptoms or concerns or difficulties that they are, you know, yeah. um, exhibiting. So we, we kind of spoke about early intervention. And as you said, prevention is better than cure. So, you mm. know, a lot of parents that are listening to this will be like, what can I do? What can I do to prevent um, any issues going forward? Um, and, I suppose one of the questions that came to my mind was, and you've kind of addressed it a little bit already, is, you know, a lot of these risk factors are outside of the control of one or two individuals, um, i.e. the parents or even the child. Um, so what can we do? What can we do on an individual level um, to mm. kind of minimize, minimize uh, the risk of ill mental health in our children? Yeah. You know, the first thing I'd say is that for any any parent that's asking themselves that, I'd say is already 
doing well you know like you're already winning you've already got the right attitude that this attitude of um uh, being aware and validating of the fact that mental health is a real yeah. thing and it is something that affects people and affects children yeah. and then thinking how can I support my child and just um that acknowledgement that you as the parent or as the carer have a crucial role to play that's another yeah. huge thing you know studies have shown that what children need is one emotionally stable adult one emotionally stable adult imagine yeah. you know very, you know hopefully many people are lucky to have be it two parents or be it extended family yeah. networks aunts and uncles etc but really even if all else fails having one adult who really cares yeah. about you is there for you emotionally is the the biggest one so that's you know that's a big one is having that connection yeah. you know making time to talk making time to care mm -hmm. and to think about all the small things because the small things are the yeah. big things so you know when we have spent i'm sure you're, you're as you said you're a mother of a toddler like sometimes you end up spending endless hours talking about dinosaurs and legos yeah. and things that you may have actual zero interest in but it's just building up that yeah. connection of i'm someone safe that you can talk to and i'm here to talk about the hard things as well as the fun yeah. things you know having um uh, making sure that you know that's one thing the other thing is just having all those basics in place you know for the for our children yeah. their routines making sure that we're encouraging them to sleep well sleep has a huge mm. effect on mental health yeah. you know eat well and as a family exercising where possible also has huge mental health impacts but the one that i find really um the one that has really helped me with my children my my personal favorite one is what we call emotion coaching okay. so that's where like we introduce this language of emotions and mental health in the family we talk about and we role model as adults about when we're struggling with an emotion and what we do about okay. it okay and that just makes it very clear to everyone that it's a uh, you know it's safe to talk about this yes. so like for example yesterday we had um a large gathering at our house so you know what it's like before yeah. the guests arrive like how to tidy the house yeah. panic all the food getting everything prepared so i said you know guys i'm starting to feel quite stressed mm -hmm. out about this there's a lot that i need to do and so um um what i'm just going what i'm going to do is i'm just going to write my list and also guys i'd really appreciate if i could have some space i just need to be in the kitchen by myself to get everything sorted okay and my children have had that enough times now that when they see me sometimes feeling stressed they will come up and give me they'll be like mom you feeling stressed do you need a hug do you need to go into your room oh. and have some alone time yeah. for five minutes and what that tells them is that hey everyone has feelings including yep. adults that i don't think that's something i knew when i was yeah. a child that adults had feelings <laughs> and it also says that um i'm allowed to talk to my mom if i'm feeling stressed and it also says hey here are some ideas of things that people can do if they're feeling yeah. stressed and you do that for any emotion and they learn how to cope and with what it. What so, age did you kind of start yeah. doing this emotional coaching from? You know, um, 
it i think you do it according to the child's age and you start very mm. early if you think about it people do it with their babies yeah. don't they they're like oh you're crying you know oh i can see that you look really really upset like you know are you hungry do you need a nappy mm. change let's try it. oh you're laughing yeah. oh isn't it so nice when mommy you yeah. know like smiles at you like you're introducing that language from very very early and then it just naturally yeah. happens and the steps towards emotion coaching are just that noticing the emotion validating mm -hmm. it and then talking it like appreciating that it is completely real and then just talking it yeah. through with the person and just doing that role modeling yeah. and that mirroring to help them get to that to that understanding of how to manage yeah. with their emotions but that's a that's a big one that's yeah really I, I i like I think our kids need to know. This is one thing that breaks my heart when I see it in my clinic. So many children, older children we're yeah. talking about now, who will have never spoken to their parent about their difficulty mm. because they didn't want to upset their parent or make their parent worried. Yeah. Okay? It's very important that our children feel like adults can yeah. cope with the child's mm -hmm. emotion. And that's not always possible, you know. If some... Some parents may find it really difficult to hear their child's yeah. emotions. That's okay. That's just, you know, let's accept that. Let's make sure there's someone else yeah. in their life who's trusted who they can take their yeah. difficult emotions to. Definitely. Yeah, because it's important to feel supported in that, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And on, on that note, how important is it for us as parents to kind of make sure that my own cup is full because it, nigh on impossible to be emotionally available to you know a child who needs you more than they might day to day maybe they're going through something um but how important is it that we as parents are you know aware and kind of taking care of our own mental health as well and our own kind of well-being so that we can then be there for our children you know you've you've answered it you know it, it, it's you need to make sure that your cup yeah. is full because how do you pour from an empty mm. container it's so important i think this has been that one of the you know the biggest realizations of my parenting and my yeah. career that i am not an infinite i do not have infinite amounts of energy compassion time yeah. to give and i so in order to be able to give that I need to have that topped up myself. Yeah. And it feels, well, in the beginning it did. Right now it doesn't. But in the beginning it felt really selfish to do that sometimes, yeah. you know. Really, really selfish, really, really guilty to, to take time for yourself or to do anything like that. Until you realize that, hey, that's actually the best thing I'm doing. It's the best thing I can do for my patients is to have my lunch yeah. break. If I don't, then the patients in the afternoon will have be having a very different yeah. experience to the patients yep. in the morning, okay? Similarly, for my children, yes, I love you and I want to spend all day with you in the garden. However, the best thing that I can sometimes do for you is to say, hey, I'm going to go for half an hour and have, you know, yeah. and rest because then that refreshes my batteries, and we, um, I, I often actually use that mobile phone battery analogy with yeah. the kids because they understand mm. it quite well. Where I'm like, guys, I really feel like my battery is 
running really low right now. I need to charge my yeah. battery so that I've got more more energy mm -hmm. to give. And it's it's very different for people, isn't it? Like I think for a long time I thought that self care meant yoga <laughs> and Pilates and a day and, at the spa you know, or something. A day at the spa, and then you realize that actually it it can be really different for lot, yeah. for everyone, and you just need to work out what really works yeah. for you. And sometimes it might be, you know, sometimes it might just be doing your salah in a closed yeah. room with no one disturbing you whilst yeah. you're doing it. Sometimes it might be um, uh, going out. This is my one, like just going, sitting in a coffee shop with a book and just reading and having a coffee by yeah. myself with no one else with me. Yeah. Or whatever it is for you, you need to do it. But you need to do it. it I, you need to do it for a few minutes every day for a few hours every mm -hmm. week okay and then if possible and this is very hard especially if you've got very young children but for a few days every year so that that really having that time yeah. for yourself is, is very precious and it's amazing like you know we've been talking about um modeling behavior and talking about emotion and you know making children feel that they can come and speak to you if they are feeling a certain way. And I think before becoming a parent, you can hear, you know, you hear loads of people saying that, you know, kids will just mirror you and they'll mimic you and they'll do everything that you do. But it's only when you become a parent that you see that they will just do as you do and not necessarily as you say. So like you said, it's, you know, it's so important to kind of take care of ourselves because we'll pass that on as well. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. And this is something that I think um, wasn't always role modeled to us yeah. growing up, you know, like um, lots of us, especially those who are like second generation, would have had parents who were working so hard yeah to just ensure that the family survived and ensure that the family settled and that the, you know, that the children yeah. did well and, you know, bless them, they were doing, juggling a hundred balls yeah. at the same time. And none of those balls was themselves. Yeah. Like that was very much put to mm. the side and, you know, may Allah bless and reward them for all the sacrifices yeah. they made, all the sacrifices they made. However, it is now, time for us to realize that you don't have to be a martyr to mm. be a parent yeah. you know and in fact looking after yourself is part of looking after yeah. your children absolutely and it's part of looking after your patients definitely finally finally you know you have to keep your cup full as a parent but as a gp people only come to you when they have problems <laughs> you know um i'm a dentist and you know we see patients who just come up routinely like you know every six months or every three months and sometimes they just have no problems at all just to make sure everything is okay but I remember you know when when we were kind of comparing the two and people would say well as a doctor you'll only see the sick patients you'll only see the people with problems um that must be exhausting um for you both emotionally mentally um, so how how do you stay motivated? How do you kind of not just say, "Oh my God, I've just had enough"? Like, you know, mm, mm. it's a really big topic, isn't it? And it's a very topical mm. one. I mean, in you know, the NHS yeah. as a whole 
is under um, huge amounts of pressure and GPs, there is a, a very high rate of burnout yeah. and sickness mm. at the moment because of the pressures that are on, on, um, you know, on GPs. Um, it's a difficult job because you see one person every 10 minutes. Yes. And for, for you, that's one of the 36 patients you're seeing that day but for that person that's their yeah. doctor's appointment and probably the most important thing yeah. in their diary that day and so you need to meet every patient with empathy and time and a smile and do that every single 10 minutes and it's hard because you're switching so one 10 minutes you're talking about the menopause the next 10 minutes someone's had a miscarriage the one after that it's someone who's having an infertility yeah. concern the one after that it's you know someone's went so it's it, it is difficult however I cope with it by reminding myself of the fact that I am in this situation as a mm. helper. You know, everyone has their difficult circumstances yeah. in life and I am not responsible yeah. for that. However, I am here to do what I can, what I can. And I always, you know, I, um, there's this amazing book I read recently, which was called like... Um, prescriptions for physicians it's a muslim it's an islamic book and it, i would really highly recommend it to any healthcare professionals mm -hmm. who are muslim and it it speaks about like shifa like healing comes yeah. from allah it doesn't come from you as mm. a doctor or you know as a dentist or as a pharmacist yeah. or as anything it comes yeah. from allah you are just a conduit you are just a um you know a tool a, a yeah. pathway for that to reach the person and so that's beautiful i love thinking of that idea that you know you're there to try and provide some healing and some and some some um you yeah. know calm for the patient and then the other thing to to re remember is just that of what's in our control and what's not out of our control and so much of what you see as a gp is not yeah. in your control so much of what you see is due to someone's you know, poverty, their socioeconomic circumstances, yep. the difficult life, you know, childhood adversity that they had. So it's just remembering you can only do what you can yep. do. But remember that, you know, you're trying that that health is so precious yeah. and you're trying to channel some of God's shifa yeah. to this person. So you need to do it's a huge responsibility and you need to do it well. So for that reason, go back to the point of your question, which was how you how I manage to keep yeah. up that energy one is by having a varied career so i could definitely not do it five yeah. days a week it's a it's lot very yeah. exhausting yeah so i do it three days a week and I, I, the other time i you know i do my other roles which um especially my iraq role which really fills yeah. my cup um professionally and the other thing as i said was taking those breaks i take my breaks and that means that so i sometimes mm. leave late and it also means that sometimes my patients yeah. have to wait a little mm. bit longer as I go and have a quick yeah. cup of tea. But I really believe that if that means that they're going to see a doctor who's got a smile and who's yeah. got energy and who's got ears yeah. that are listening, then it's a worthy yeah. thing to do. So, yeah, it's it's a hard job. It's, it's an mm. important job. And it's, um, you know, it's a job where self-care is very yeah. important because burnout is very or is always around, yeah, on the horizon exactly. around the corner <laughs> <laughs> so um that was a really brilliant discussion 
Um, thank you so much. And I feel like we've kind of just touched the tip of the iceberg on so many things. Like there were so many instances where I was like, oh my God, we could do like a whole podcast on this and a whole podcast on that. Um, so thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your wisdom. Thank you for having me and for raising, you know, awareness about this really important issue. Um, To all the listeners, I hope that um, they benefited as well, as much as I did, inshallah. And it'd be lovely to have you on again soon, maybe, inshallah. Oh, I'd love it. Thank you. I would love it. So that's it for today's episode with Dr. Amina Al-Yasin. I found that really, really informative and I hope you did as well. The biggest takeaway from today's chat with Dr. Amina for me was about emotional coaching and how to model our language in front of our children when it comes to talking about our emotions and how we're feeling and how this teaches our children to then speak to us and open up when they are feeling a certain way, whether it's positive or negative. And I found that so powerful. The other thing that I took away from this is just how important it is to have your own cup full as a parent and that you can't pour from an empty cup. So before getting into addressing anyone else's needs, it's so important that we take care of our own. And as guilty as we may feel as parents for taking time out and taking time to refill our cups, it's so important to acknowledge that we will be better parents as a result of taking that time out. So once again, I hope you found today's episode with Dr. Amna Yasin as useful as I did. Please keep an eye out. Please subscribe to our podcast and inshallah join us for the next episode of the My Muslim Family podcast. That's it from me. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.